Support for Health Matters on MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center, located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. Additional information on the Northeast AHEC is available online at neahec.org. Hello and welcome to Health Matters. I'm your host and Rootin' Tootin' Radio Health Evangelist. Rootin' Tootin'? Yes, I, I've uh, been trying to bring in the hyphenated adjectives, uh, the hyphenated alliterative adjectives. Uh-huh. Rootin' Tootin', Itsy Bitsy, Teeny Weeny, all those things. But anyway, I'm your Rootin' Tootin' Radio Health Evangelist. And this is the Those Idiots Are Edit Again show. We had an alert listener who has uh, discovered that we are idiots, and so we thought it was uh, maybe time to the cat's out of the bag. I thought we put a disclaimer before all the shows. <laughs> Is that not making it to the air? Well, in this person's defense, when Wuhan virus, the SARS-CoV-19-causing uh, uh, virus, they've renamed it uh, several times, and I think that's the correct name, at least the name it is at the time we go to press. Please don't get upset if the name changes again and we're spreading misinformation. Uh, but at any rate, we, it was an interesting thing. We put it on the radio, and then it absolutely exploded. We then decided, okay, we, uh, as a once-a-week show, cannot do that type of uh, reporting and coverage. It does uh, not work well for our method of uh, bringing you health information, and so we stopped, but uh, we were idiots anyway. Thanks to our listeners at True Talk Internet Radio, special radio wave to those hardworking folks over there at the MSU Ronald G. Eaglin Space Science Center. With me from the University of Kentucky Physician Assistant Program is Assistant Professor Shelley Irving. Hi, Shelley. Hello. Our Executive Director of Networking and Infrastructure at UK and our other co-medical host, Rick Phillips, unfortunately is going through a rather extreme period in his life when he has to work. Can send your Get Lazy Soon cards uh, to Rick and Care of HM Radio Show on Facebook, but at least uh, for the next week and possibly longer, Rick will have to work. Of course, he has all of our sympathy for that. That's too bad. It really would be rough on him, too. I mean, change is not good for a guy like Rick. <laughs> At any rate, uh, our website to listen to the show, wmky.org, where you can uh, download or play replays of our old shows. You can also look around that website. A lot of good music, a lot of good content on the Moorhead State Public Radio website. And also, if you go to Facebook, HM Radio Show, we are reducing our footprint, I think, on Facebook would be the way to say it. Uh, I am not that happy with Facebook in general that I know much about. I'm concerned about what Facebook does. But we are keeping our presence there so you can at least see the uh, uh, some of the things that are happening in our area. Our sponsor... We're going back with the lung cancer screening sponsor. You screen, I screen, we all screen for lung cancer. U.S. cancer death rates in January 8th. The journal CA, a cancer journal for clinicians, did their annual cancer statistics report. And in the rate of people dying from cancer in the United States continues to decline 26 years in a row. We have had fewer deaths every year. That's fewer deaths. Actually, the the, uh, death rates have been dropping. From 2016 to 2017, there was a 2.2% plunge is the word they use. And this is a startling one-year drop in the death rate. Now, you said drop in death rate, right? Is there a drop in incidence of lung cancer? The death rate, first of all, uh, what Shelley's talking about is the death rate and uh, the overall drop in death rate. It was very much spurred by a very sharp decline in lung cancer deaths. The incidence of lung cancer did not drop as rapidly as the death rate. So what that means, I think there's a couple of things that that means. First of all, they're still sorting it out. Even the experts are saying, well, we have our smoking rates are at an all-time low. 
We are, if you exclude vaping, our, I mean, our combustible tobacco smoking rates, which is really the, the high uh, cancer risk form of uh, tobacco. Our rates there are at an all-time low, and so that may be driving a drop in incidence. But even then, uh, there are improvements in our ability to treat lung cancer. They have made some gains that are significant. I mean, we're talking about if you are diagnosed with lung cancer, a longer survival than uh, you even uh, four or five years ago than you had. But I, I also have to think, in some extent, uh, it is due to screening for lung cancer. Uh, the initial studies on this are now nearly 10 years old, and they showed that you could reduce your mortality about 10%. What you do is you line up your patients, ages, Preventive Services Task Force says 55 to 80, uh, who have, have smoked more than 30 years, who have quit less than 15 years, if they have quit, and they get a CAT scan every year. The CAT scan finds small lung nodules. Now, here in the Ohio River Valley, we all have histoplasmosis. We all have these tiny nodules in our lungs, but they've set the size on them to around six millimeters, and that's a little bit big for histo. And so if they see something six millimeters or bigger, they watch it. If it grows, they biopsy it or they remove it. And doing that turns out to raise your overall life expectancy by around 7%, drop your risk of dying of lung cancer by 20% because we're picking the lung cancer up early. If you or someone you love has smoked more than 30 years and you're over age 55, talk with your health care provider about screening for lung cancer. This the risk of developing lung cancer in smokers is just astronomical. It is so much greater than the risk of developing colon cancer or breast cancer in the general population. So if you do smoke, you are engaging in a behavior that puts you at very high risk for lung cancer, but we can help you while you're trying to stop. Now, the main thing, of course, is you should stop. You should really stop smoking. Right. While you are working on that, or if you have quit less than 15 years ago, we can protect you and reduce your risk of dying from lung cancer by screening for it. And, the, and the, again, that targeted screening of high-risk people who have been smoking a long time turns out to be as good as any other screening in terms of the amount of money you spend for the number of lives you save. It beats uh, pap smears. It beats uh, uh, mammograms. It beats colon cancer in terms of the return on your money. So we are very excited about this, and I think we are starting to see with the lower smoking rates, with the better treatments, and with the screening, uh, finally, lung cancer death rates are falling. Now, our job is to make sure that everybody takes advantage of this, not just people who are wealthy or people who are educated. Uh, so we've got to get the word out to all of our radio fans that uh, if you are a smoker, we can help lower your risk of lung cancer. And insurance will cover that if you meet those parameters, like you said, the age and the, the number of years that you've smoked or have quit smoking. Insurance is covering that screening test, right, once a year. Medicare pays entirely for it. There is, there is no cost uh, to the, the patient. The Obamacare insurances, they are mandated to cover it if the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends it, and they do. Now, some insurance don't. And the other thing to remember is if they find one of those spots on your lungs and they have to do a biopsy, well, then that's all the deductibles and co-pays that you've usually got. So if you've got a high deductible insurance, you've got to be prepared for that. But my goodness, it is a life-saving surgery. You walk out of there cancer-free. They get to that when it's a small spot rather than when it's occupying half your lung. Now, let's go back a minute. The Surgeon General, when he pointed out that U.S. Uh, smoking rates have now hit an all-time low, let's see, we're looking now at 14% of Americans across the board, 34 million people still smoke. He sort of uh, blasted healthcare providers. 40% of smokers who see their physician aren't advised by the provider to quit. I find that hard to believe. I, I, I will say if you ask my patients, 
40% of them may say, well, I don't remember him telling me to quit. I would say 40% of my patients don't remember a lot of things that I tell them. But at any rate, let's say your doctor is a real jerk. Let's say your doctor is an idiot. An idiot. An idiot. This is this is perfect. If your doctor happens to be me, then this radio show is here to tell you, stop smoking, for God's sakes. Cigarette smoking, been related to cancer of the lung, cancer of the larynx, cancer of the oral cavity, cancer of the esophagus, cancer of the bladder, slight ri- increase in risk of cancer uh, of the pancreas. It's been related to heart attacks. It's been related to strokes. It's been related to cardiovascular disease. It, this stuff, when it gets in your bloodstream, it's just an irritant, and it goes throughout your body, raises the, the rates of, of a dozen different cancers uh, besides lung cancer. Don't do this to yourself. It's a really bad idea. It's not a habit. It's not satisfaction. It's not menthol. It's not that fresh taste. It is, in fact, an addictive substance that kills you, uh, and uh, uh, we don't want you to die. We need the listeners, to be honest, because we're idiots. So please stop smoking, and if you do continue to smoke or if you've recently stopped, uh, we recommend you get screened for lung cancer if you meet those uh, parameters. Age 55 to 80, according to the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, smoke more than 30 years, quit less than 15. Those are the people we're looking for, and we think we can help you uh, and possibly save your life. That's our sponsor, Lung Cancer Screening. You screen, I screen, we all screen for lung cancer. Now, let's just start with the feel-good article of the show. A feel-good article. Because <laughs> we are mostly different. doom and gloom here, and I like this one. This was uh, in the Academic uh, Emergency Medicine, January 20th of 2020. And they looked at people who were anxious. Uh, and let's face it, everybody in the emergency room is anxious. I mean, if you come into the emergency room and you're calm, I don't think you appreciate what how stupid you were. An idiot. Yeah, you were an idiot. You're in the emergency room. I don't know what's sticking out of your neck. I I don't know what that thing is, but you shouldn't have put it there and you should be anxious. So what they did, they gave the patients a coloring book and pencils. These are adult patients, a coloring book. It was a 10 picture coloring book for adults and 36 colored pencils. Wow. More colored pencils than I have ever had in my lifetime. I have a lot more than that at home. I've got like the 100 pack. Or the other thing they did was they gave them a blank notepad and a pen. Yeah, I wouldn't give a fuck with that. Here's your notepad. Here's your pen. Okay. I am taking notes now. What are you going to do with that? They measured the anxiety with a 21-point hospital anxiety and depression scale. They didn't mention about depression, but that was the scale. The inclusion criteria, the baseline score had to be greater than seven, meaning you were an anxious person. You had to be over age 16. We're not just handing these coloring books out to any kids. No history of violence. Well, I mean, your way. You don't want to give somebody a sharpened tool. Okay, fair enough. And, and normal mental status. Of the 179 screen patients, 53, 74% of them were women, met the inclusion criteria. Okay. See, the women appreciate, the guys are going, well, I don't know what it is. It's, uh, I can't even see it. Something's sticking in my skull. The women say, oh my gosh, you know, it's stuck in my skull. This is bad. And the, and the guys go, well, you know, I've had worse. The mean scores dropped from 13 at baseline to 9.3 at two hours in the coloring book group and from 12 to 11.7, a three-tenths drop versus a practically a four-point drop in the coloring book group. And it was statistically significant. So they said, you know, this will be affordable. It would be harmless. Uh, although if you give me 36 
different colors, you could blow my mind. That's that's a concern, I think. Mm-hmm. To modestly decrease anxiety in people. Again, it was uh, mostly women, uh, and they also had to have a certain anxiety score at baseline. But coloring books, crosswords, Sudoku puzzles, you know, a lot of possibilities there. And we've seen also the uh, post-operative pain medicine requirements drop in people who are playing video games. So something to occupy your mind while you are in the emergency room. If the emergency room doesn't provide it, you should. Now, you are a colorer. Yeah, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm a trailblazer, not just an idiot. I'm a trailblazer, too. So I was <laughs> an idiot trailblazer. I'm so. an idiot trailblazer. That's right. <laughs> I was collaring for stress relief before it was cool. Did you did you do this during lectures or, or what was your uh, when do you uh, color? Just typically I do it at home or just traveling road trips. You know, I get motion sick. So if I'm a passenger on a road trip, you color in the color. car. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do. And you, you lose pencils, I'm sure. Probably, and I'm not very good at it, but that's not the point. Okay, do you, but I mean, you good at coloring means staying in the lines, right? And so I think that's part of it for me is just the the what I have to do to concentrate to stay in the lines occupies me enough to reduce my stress. I and can't it, worry about other stuff. Does it help with car sick? Does it help the nausea? And no, not really. Because I, I would think you're focused, and that that could work either way. It, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Grab your coloring books, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to take a break and come back with our second fractional portion on Moorhead State Public Radio. Support for MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. The Northeast AHEC connects students to careers, professionals to communities, and communities to better health. The Northeast AHEC strives to improve the supply and distribution of healthcare professionals through community and academic educational partnerships. More information is available online at neahec.org. Hi, and welcome back. This is the second fractional portion of Health Matters. I'm Shelley Irving. I'm Dr. Tony Weaver. This is the Those Idiots Are At It Again show. We are here to spread misinformation if it happens that a new headline comes out between the time we record this and 10 days later when it is on the air. Uh, it will be misinformation and we will be idiots, and we apparently are idiots on a regular basis. Our sponsor for the second time, Lung Cancer Screening, reminding you, you screen, I screen, we all screen for lung cancer. Again, from 2016 to 2017, the United States saw its largest ever single-year drop in the overall rate of cancer deaths, 2.2% drop, and mainly led by a decline in lung cancer deaths. And lung cancer kills more Americans than the the, the next two or three, depending on uh, how you add it up, causes of cancer death combined. Uh, it is by far and away the most deadly cancer in the United States. And to see a drop in that one is a very, very satisfying thing. Now, we're still waiting at Health Matters, uh, reserving some judgment. It could be that uh, the last vestige of the educated affluent smokers have stopped and the lung cancer rates drip. They uh, dip slightly. And now we are looking at people we know, uh, people with lower socioeconomic status, people with lower educational status status, people with disabilities, people with uh, mental illnesses have a higher rate of smoking than the general public. So if we are, in fact, just concentrating lung cancer deaths in that group, that's a very unfortunate thing. If it's across the board, then we have really done something. Do you think it could uh, have something to do with occupational hazards as well to other inhalants that, you know, maybe using masks or other protective equipment may play a role in there? Uh, you know, they did not mention that in the article. I'll quote one of the epidemiologists in the article. who said the biggest driver is reduction in smoking, but also contributing or improvements in treatment as well as early detection. 
it's exciting we're seeing the decline uh, continue because for other leading causes of death like heart disease and stroke, uh, it, the decline is slowing. And uh, in fact, we may be reversing. We've been worried about that. We've had what we call the deaths of despair that also hit people, uh, again, lower socioeconomic status, lower educational status, uh, the drug overdoses, uh, and again, the suicides, the alcoholic, alcoholism-related deaths have been rising. And so when you see a drop in death rate, it makes us excited. Just a reminder, if you screen for lung cancer, if you are age 55 to 80, the uh, Medicare will pay for it uh, through age 77. They do a, a different form of math than the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. But 55 to 77 or 55 to 80, talk to your health care provider about this. If you have smoked more than 30 years, if you have quit less than 15, and even after you quit, it takes a while for your lung cancer rate to drop, you should talk to your health care provider about a CAT scan once a year. Uh, and these CAT scans, it's a very fast test to get. Uh, it is painless. The radiation, people worry about that. But I, I will tell you, you know, the, these, uh, these studies were followed. Some of them have been followed now for over a decade. Uh, and more people who are alive who got the screening than who didn't get the screening. And so we can talk about radiation, and, and they're trying to minimize the radiation amount. The radiation uh, is more than background radiation, certainly more than mammograms, but you start it later than mammograms. Uh, there are all sorts of things I can tell you, but the bottom line is more people are alive who got screened than who didn't get screened. Uh, and uh, that should uh, hopefully uh, uh, allay some of the anxiety about getting radiation. Again, our smoking rates have dropped, and again, from Health Matters, if you smoke, Please stop. It's not a good habit. It is not a, uh, as we said, uh, that does not make you uh, cool. It does not make you a unique person, uh, a rebel or anything like that. It just kills you. And uh, I, unfortunately, uh, working with hospice and working with geriatric patients, I, I see a lot of that. And it, it, it breaks my heart. That's our sponsor, Lung Cancer Screening. You screen, I screen. We all screen for lung cancer. This was from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And you know, Shelley, I, I just don't know what to do with this journal anymore. I have become so disillusioned with nutritional articles. They are still really bound up in the chemistry of nutrition. Uh, not really, they have not advanced to considering what kind of germs are growing in your colon uh, with the various foods you eat. Uh, they look at the fat content, the sugar content, uh, the ingredients, rather than what it does to your body. Well, you just can't control for everything. And when no. you ask people what they eat, they under or overestimate. It's just so so difficult. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's like uh, it would be like the mortality risk of heading south. You know, okay, <laughs> well, you could study that. And I'm sure you could get some numbers, people who go south instead of people who go north. But but honestly, uh, it's uh, when you start off with such a vague premise, uh, the results you get are meaningless. And the the sensibility we had back last fall, we presented this on health matters that it just doesn't make sense to separate food out from culture, from socioeconomic status, from geography, uh, from other things, and try to make a pronouncements about what is good food and what is bad food. I mean, uh, certainly, I, I don't want to destroy our planet by uh, agricultural practices that causing uh, damage in, uh, to ecosystems and so forth. But uh, our heavy uh, fertilization of our uh, plant crops does not make me feel very good. Uh, our, certainly the uh, beef production and uh, pork production is not uh, done, maybe not even in a humane way. Uh, there, there are a lot of reasons you can change your diet, which is perfectly fine. But I think uh, a, a scientific analysis of the ingredients of meat and, and uh, vegetables may not be the right way to do it. And I, I'm just puzzled by it. I, I don't know that I, I can give uh, reasonable advice. So 
from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. So you're going to give unreasonable <laughs> advice, right? Well, the numbers here are pretty impressive, and it does, I think it makes a point. And uh, you can argue this, and please do so. Write us on Facebook. Tell us why we're idiots about this. They looked at 177,000 and change people in 50 countries, three different studies, and egg consumption. Just how many eggs do you eat in a week? And then they looked at their risk of having a heart attack or having a stroke or having any cardiovascular event or dying. Uh, And I can go through the individual numbers, but I'll just tell you, there were no significant numbers. There was no significant change with egg consumption. Their conclusions in three large international prospective studies. That is, they they started off asking, well, how many eggs do you eat? And then they watched to see what happened to those people. 177,000 individuals, 12,000, almost 13,000 deaths, uh, 13,000 and change cardiovascular events from 50 countries, six continents. They could not find any significant association between egg intake and lipids, mortality, or cardiovascular events. Boy, eggs have waxed and waned, haven't they? They've been the they bad really guys. Have. They've been the good guys. But, I mean, the reality is they're a cheap source of protein that's readily available in much of the world. Yeah, and I think the problem is uh, that it, you uh, the cholesterol, 80% of it is manufactured. I, I learned that in medical school. That may be incorrect or it may be too vague, but 80% of it is manufactured by your body. If you take in a large amount of fats, you can make cholesterol, and so trying to lower the cholesterol you take in is only really moving, uh, working with 20% of your total cholesterol. You may be able to change your cholesterol in a meaningful way by losing a substantial amount of weight. That deprives your body of the building blocks it needs to create lipids. I'll just say this, and, and I, I hate to pick on Cheerios, but they, 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 they started it. <laughs> you, cannot, you cannot change your risk of dying by eating Cheerios. I mean, it sounds like a good thing, and certainly, uh, you know, the old man and the young his daughter, granddaughter, they're uh, they're uh, trash talking each other, mm-hmm. yeah, and and uh, who's gonna, you know, but I, but honestly, you cannot do that, even a major change in your diet, but a minor change in your diet, and it looks like if you like eggs, and eggs are your source of protein, you're you're not necessarily gonna die of of the eggs. I do not think of eggs as death in a shell. No. Um. Mm-hmm. Now, you know it. You may go back and, and find that uh, uh, that maybe there is uh, some, uh, we can do a better study. But when you come up uh, with uh, nearly 200,000 people and you've uh, followed them for 10 years prospectively, these type of studies are really hard to outdate. That is, you know, it's really hard to come up with a, a better study that will have different conclusions. And so I think for my patients, I'd say, look, you need to manage your weight. You need to do adopt healthy habits. Uh, but uh, I think when you look at individual dietary components, like don't eat eggs, don't eat, you know, certain uh, chemicals or certain uh, products that have certain chemicals in them, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, that being said, you know, we've talked about salt mm-hmm. makes your body hold in fluid. Mm-hmm. Salt can, for some people, raise their blood pressure. Not for everybody. Salt is not universally bad. But uh, for people with heart failure, people with uh, who have, are having problems with fluid, salt can be bad. Trans fats are nasty things that we created uh, to allow snack cakes to stay on the shelves for a year at a time and still taste about the same as they did a year ago. Not, not a good thing. Not real great, yeah. But, uh, uh, but, uh, but eggs are just not one of those things that, uh, that I think uh, you should avoid. Now, speaking of that, we're going to keep on with, with idiot stuff. Idiot stuff. <laughs> this is the theme. This was in the uh, Journal of the American Heart Association, uh, February 5th. 
And this was from Finland. It is a Finnish study. Now, make sure we understand. Oh, it's a study of Finns. A study of Finns. See, do you see how many ways you can get that wrong? Oh, it's sharks. No, it's not sharks. It's Finnish. It's a, it's a Finnish it's study. Finished. Yeah. <laughs> see, little idiot me likes this. <laughs> okay. All right. 41,000 public sector workers free of cardiovascular disease. That's important. These people okay. did not have any uh, strokes, any heart attacks at baseline. And they watched them from, uh, they did surveys every four years from 2000 to 2013. So they would, two or three surveys. They had to do at least two of them to get in the study. And they looked to see what happens in the ones, now in Finland, there's a, a national registry of what medicines you're on. So they could take these 41,000 people uh, who are free of cardiovascular disease, and they can see which ones started blood pressure medicines, which ones started cholesterol medicines. They could link that back to their medical record. It's a fantastic research tool that we simply don't have in the United States. But what they found, participants who started medications, if you start a blood pressure medicine or cholesterol medicine, you're 82% more likely to become obese. Wow. So are we prescribing complacency? Is that what we're doing? That's the question. Uh, you are 8% more likely to become physically inactive, and the average physical activity of, among all the people who started these medicines dropped. And so, you know, the, the initial thought was exactly what you said. Maybe if you start medications, and you think about it, I, I don't know, I, you think about shared decision-making. You go to the doctor and you say, you know, it's time to get my life under control. I think I ought to start medication, and I'm going to do this. Well, that might be the way it happens, but I think a lot of times as a physician, as a healthcare provider, my patient comes in and says, you know, you really, we're going to really have to, we're going to have to get this under control. Uh, I think we're going to need to start a medication. Mm-hmm. And, and it is, you can call that a shared decision making, but I'm the one that brought it up. They did not come to me and say, do you think I need medicine? Right. Most of the time I'm telling them, I think you need medicine. Right. And so that may then you say, okay, now I'm on the medicine. Now the numbers look better. Let's uh, let's relax here. Let's not get too excited about things. Well, it's not too different from what we see in some uh, patients with diabetes who start with type two diabetes who start insulin. Right? They can cheat a little bit if they're really astute with insulin. Right? They can cover. Yeah, it might be that uh, Russell Lupker, uh, who's Mayo professor, Mayo Clinic professor of epidemiology and community health uh, at the University of Minnesota. It's not Mayo Clinic. I'm sorry. He's the Mayo professor at the University of Minnesota. He says, well, uh, people get started on medications for increased risk. They may let things slide some. He says, but I I still think, you know, the medicines, again, in the large trials of the medicines, once again, we know people live longer who were started on these medications. What it reinforced to him was we're good at prescribing things, but not very good at making people change their behaviors, which is absolutely true. Smokers who uh, took medications for blood pressure and cholesterol and quit gained more weight than smokers who were not on medications and quit. So it was not from other health habits because you, if you do stop smoking, you, you might quit. The other question I saw in the comments was, well, you know, those cholesterol medicines, they make your muscles sore. Maybe people are sitting in the chair more. They looked at new prescriptions for the cholesterol medicines versus people who were on them, and they could not see a change. Pretty much anyone who was on medication, whether it was new or old, was uh, exercising less than people who weren't. They could not see a drop in activity uh, at the time of getting a, uh, a cholesterol-lowering medicine. But when you look a few years later, it, it was lower. It was there. So there's still, I mean, there, there are some people that are, are really disturbed by these cholesterol medicines. They'll say, well, you haven't proved your point. Uh, it still may be that the medicines themselves are causing this. And that's the question. You know, what are you trying to pull here, you idiots? 
You know, you're prescribing pills that make people less active and make them heavier. Well, I still think prescribing the medicine is the right thing to do, right? But we might need to just have those conversations uh, or make sure that we're having those conversations about the lifestyle changes. Yeah, I think working together on that, because, again, you can say, well, okay, look, if you're going to get fat, you're going to sit in a chair. I'm going to try to keep you alive with the pill. (laughs) So, you know, you can see we may not be working together as much as we thought we were uh, on this. At any rate, uh, it's an interesting kind of a counterpoint. Again, if you're a conspiracy therapy person and a conspiracy theory person, I don't know what conspiracy therapy is, but it's kind of interesting. We, we could yeah. try it. Yeah. Donald Trump oh. does not want you to get better. Wow. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> but if, if you're on. a conspiracy theory person, then those medications may, uh, you know, these big studies, they, they, they hint at some uh, side effects from them. But the, the theory from these people who admittedly prescribe the medicines and endorse them is we think that it, it kind of takes the edge off so that a person relaxes more. And that relaxing is not necessarily it kind of changes the game a little bit. It, it, it limits the ability to improve a person's lifestyle. Well, it, it induces some bias, too, right? So just in that patient-provider encounter, they come to us, they expect us to do something, and the, the number one thing that we do is prescribe medication, right? And so they come to us with an expectation. Sometimes I think we may be guilty of assuming that expectation is a medication when maybe we could have gotten away with some more lifestyle right. education. Maybe not. Well, I can see another thing is, you know, when those numbers finally hit the point where we start medication, it's a sign that something is has reached a threshold. And so it may very well be that we're seeing uh, the first sign that you are declining is the fact that you have to go on a medication. So it may be, yes, that is absolutely true, but the medicines aren't causing it. The people aren't relaxing. We are catching them early in decline and uh, uh, trying to prevent that decline and not necessarily uh, completely successful at it. We can change the numbers but can't stop the weight from going up and the uh, uh, physical activity from going down. You can spin this any way you want to because, again, we don't have the information to contradict you, but uh, argue amongst yourselves. Yes. Yeah, please don't call. (laughs) Just don't call the station this time. (laughs) (laughs) Next up, this was from uh, Alia Pavola, Becker's Hospital Review. It was updated, by the way, for those of you who are worried we're out of date. Uh, it was updated February 11th at 12.33 p.m. So if you're listening to this, and you will be, after February 11th, it could be out of date, but I don't think it will. The U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is suing Yale New Haven Hospital because it has a policy that mandates eye and neuro psychological examinations for all employees age older, age 70 or older who seek medical privileges. Hey, isn't that great, though? We're going to take care of their vision. We're going to take care of their, <laughs> take their care. cognitive health. We're going to take mean, care of it right? by kicking them out. What you going to do? <laughs> no. So if you are 70 or older and you're working, and they mentioned medical privileges, which this would be healthcare providers. This would be nurse practitioners. It would be physician assistants, probably physicians, um, who seek medical privileges. The medical privileges mean the, pr- the privilege of practicing medicine at Yale New Haven. If you are 70 or older, you've got to get your eye exam. Uh, you've got to do neuropsychological examination. And they said, this is discrimination against old people. Ageism. Ageism. It absolutely is. Uh, they're singled out solely because of their age, which is absolutely true. If you're, if you're age 69, no problem. When you hit 70, show me the eye exam, show me the neuropsychological exam. Now, all right. Now, you can say, I'll say. Okay. I'm, I'm going to, Shelly and I agree on so much stuff that I'm going to have to just kind of, uh, I'll, I'll take the side of this. Okay, Shelly, look. Uh, if 
if people are coming to that hospital and entrusting these old geezers mm-hmm. to care for them, we need to make sure the old geezers can see and that they're not uh, uh, getting dementia. Because if they if they do that, that's that's putting the patients at risk. The, the whole the whole do no harm. So you're going to take the do no harm. Yeah, yeah, side, absolutely. We got to protect side. the patients from these old folks. Well, what about the rights of the old folks? Well, doctors don't have a right to practice blind and demented. Hey, we have we we have <laughs> hearing impaired providers can use special stethoscopes that help them hear. There are you know adaptations that can be made to help someone with a disability practice. Well, and and I think the argument we had on the way over here was that uh, uh, if you're going to do that, then we ought to to screen the younger providers for burnout, depression, anxiety, uh, anxiety, uh, things that would interfere with their ability. But we're not doing that. We're also not going to carry on this conversation. we got to take a break. You're listening to Health Matters on Moorhead State Public Radio. Support for MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. The Northeast AHEC connects students to careers, professionals to communities, and communities to better health. The Northeast AHEC strives to improve the supply and distribution of healthcare professionals through community and academic educational partnerships. More information is available online at neahec.org. Hi, and welcome back to the third and final fractional portion of Health Matters. I'm Shelley Irving. I'm Dr. Tony Weaver. This is the Those Idiots Are At It Again show. Yes, we are. <laughs> yes, we are. We have, we've explained this enough. We, uh, I will not make a further explanation. Final time for our sponsor, Lung Cancer Screening. You screen, I screen, we all screen for lung cancer. I want no explanations here. We're going to just go over the facts. The, our cigarette smoking rate is at an all-time low. Nationally, it is 14% now. The Surgeon General though reports that we are not telling people to quit so if you are one of the 14 percent it is time it is past time let's put those cigarettes aside get help if you need to the quit rate is higher with the medications either the nicotine replacement chantix uh, or zyban all of these have higher quit rates than just trying on your own but that being said about a third of people who do quit wind up quitting without the help of any other person do it yourself do it with your friends enlist the help of your health care provider, but find a way to get off cigarettes. Second thing is, for the 15 years after you quit, or if you haven't quit, we do have a way to give you partial protection against dying of lung cancer. If you are age 55 to 80, Medicare will pay for it from age 65 to 77. If you are 55 to 80, you've smoked more than 30 years, you quit less than 15, you can get a CAT scan once a year. Your insurance will cover it, or Medicare will cover it up to age 77, and they look for spots on the lung, and if those spots are above a certain size or they are enlarging, they biopsy them or remove them, and that turns out to save lives. Uh, It saves lives overall. Uh, The overall mortality rate drops in the people who got screened compared to the ones who didn't, and specifically, it drops the rate of dying of lung cancer in study after study. There are now two very large studies on two different continents where we saw a 20 to 30% drop in your risk of dying of lung cancer, and that is serious business. Uh, I think that's one of the things that may be driving our overall decline in cancer death rates. 
Now, back to this, because I am not through arguing with Shelly about this. Oh, bring it on. Once again, uh, just to, uh, uh, I'll, I'll present the two sides. Yale New Haven Hospital has a policy. If you are 70 or older and you want medical privileges there, you have to take two examinations, an eye examination and a neuropsychological exam. The neuropsychological exam, purely and simply, is to try to pick up early signs of cognitive impairment or cognitive decline. Apparently, those early signs do not happen at 69. You can say dementia. That's okay. You, they do not happen at 64. Uh, they do not happen when you're depressed at age 40. They do not happen when you're pregnant uh, or uh, a, a, a new mother and uh, you're up all night. You sure? Well, you don't have to take a test. And boy, well, try I tell you what, try making new moms take a test to prove that they're capable of working. <laughs> Good luck with that one, Shelley. <laughs> I don't think that's going to work. I'm a little offended they left out hearing, though. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's kind of important in healthcare. Uh, we're talking, uh, it may be important in terms of maintaining your cognitive abilities. And certainly, if you are a person who takes care of patients, uh, if you're not able to hear the patients, uh, that, that can cause problems in your career, certainly. So, from the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, while the Yale New Haven Hospital may claim its policy is well-intentioned, it violates anti-discrimination laws. Jeffrey Burstein, a regional attorney for the EEOC's New York District Office, there are many other non-discriminatory methods already in place to ensure the competence of all physicians and other health care providers, regardless of age. So he is upset that these things kick in at age 70. Now, this from Yale New Haven Hospital spokesman said, Our late career practitioner policy is designed to protect our patients from potential harm while including safeguards to ensure that our physicians are treated fairly. Okay, so they want to be fair. So if they want to be fair and they want to be competent, how are they going to prove the uh, the young providers are competent? Cause, well, know. they said this policy, I mean, they, first of all, that's not in this, this article. It's a very good question, Shelley, but it, uh, they, they did, did not. And that when, when someone... When there's a gap that glaring and obvious, you're thinking, okay, I think this is not going to go well for them. They said uh, the policy is modeled on similar standards in other industries. Other industries. Other industries. Okay. We're confident no discrimination has occurred. We will vigorously defend ourselves in this matter. Now, I don't know. They didn't mention what other industries uh, that they're basing it on. But I bet you, you know, if you look at uh, commercial driver's license, Mm -hmm. you have to do a visual test because you're driving a large truck. Now, Mm -hmm. you could be blind... And still practice medicine. Mm-hmm. And still practice good medicine. As a matter of fact, if you were a psychiatrist. Yeah. Things you, you, you probably wouldn't want to do surgery or, right. or dermatology. Interpret- <laughs> yeah. Or radiology. Other things. But you <laughs> yeah. could. Uh, and I don't know, you know, in terms of fairness, I think a, a blind or a visually impaired person could still practice very good medicine. I, you know, I don't know. Again, I, I'm not going to say that a person who is impaired neuropsychologically would necessarily practice good medicine, but I think it is interesting, and I, I I would absolutely agree that they're they're targeting dementia as opposed to other forms of impairment, and that would include use of both prescription and non-prescription drugs can impair. And for as keeping a log of your weekend activities and making sure there is adequate time for something to clear your system. But if you even take a sleeping medicine, we've looked at the impairment of staying up all night, and that was a mixed bag. We did not go back to taking call all night, to, and I think that was a wise move. But we could not prove. Problem is, when your person gets off to get that extra sleep, you suddenly get a new person who doesn't know you as well. 
and the impairment of that new person not knowing you may be equal to or greater to than the impairment of the person who was sleepy but has been with you the past 24 hours and knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, uh, But I, I think I do believe that just simply sorting it out into above 70, below 70 years of age yeah, is, that could is be not, a problem. I can't see how that's going to hold well, up. Well, let's go back to the vision. So say somebody is a, a radiologist and something happens and they lose their vision. How can you accommodate that? Well, we want to be fair to them. They shouldn't have lost their vision. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's the that's, that's the, fair the fairness. Stance. Yeah, they, ooh, I, that's that's unfortunate. I, I don't I don't know that there's accommodation. I think if you if you develop a, something like a macular degeneration, mm-hmm. age related macular degeneration, I think your career is over. I, tell me I'm wrong. But, I'd uh, like to. I don't think I can. And no. and, and so for a, someone who unfortunately finds himself in that situation, I mean, what are they looking at? A, a, a well, another residency to. To practice a different area? I mean, yeah. the joke know, is they're do? not looking at anything. <laughs> That's right. This is the that idiot a, show. That was, a, that was a terrible joke. Okay, but <laughs> here we are. Uh, I believe you are correct. If you have a vision based specialty, then you, you, you have no alternatives, you have no options. Um, within medicine, you know, there are uh, administrative positions, there are uh, other things that uh, you can do in patient care uh, to make up for declining vision. Uh, And and, and something our listeners might not know is we have technical standards, right? So we have technical standards that if we can't meet, we can't do our job. Right. And and so I think we're kind of crossing into some of that. And so what does the law say about those technical standards? I think uh, you know? the idea behind the technical standards was: look, if you have, uh, uh, if you are have some form of, and I'm I'm sorry, I've, I've got to choose my words carefully. If you are a differently able person, if you can meet the standards, however you meet the standards, uh, then uh, that's fine. You can do whatever it is. If you can't meet the standards, uh, then uh, that's the the sign that uh, uh, that you should not be doing that particular job either now, or uh, you shouldn't have gone into it in the first place. Uh, so I, I honestly, I, I have seen. I've seen a lot of different, even within, uh, in the, again, when I was an assistant dean, uh, I had employees, and I could see over their lifetime, people at times are more competent and capable than at other times. Sometimes they simply cannot bring their full faculties into the job. If you've got a good employee, uh, you recognize they will have uh, some personal issues. Uh, they have, might have some health issues, and you try to see them through that as long as uh, they're safe uh, at the workplace. Um and I don't know, you know, if you start testing, you know, who sets those standards and says uh, this right. is too impaired for what this person does. A lot of uh, physicians, certainly as they get older, mm-hmm. they cut back or they go into more uh, things like hospice where you're, you spend more time consoling uh, than uh, making uh, precise uh, diagnostic tests and, and uh, uh, split-second uh, treatments. And so is the, are the test standards for a hospice physician uh, for a counselor, going to be the same as for a critical care uh, surgical subspecialist uh, or a critical care uh, person. Right. And how would you count for experience, to your point? You know, because that, that, that says a lot um, as opposed to just ordering a bunch of tests or, or running a, a bunch of, of new fangled diagnostics. Yeah. Suppose, suppose I am blind as a bat and I make rounds and you present a patient to me. And I have years and years of experience, mm-hmm. and I am considerably—I'm not an idiot for, for purposes of this yeah, hypothetical. Spend that for a yeah. moment. Uh, then it may be possible that my years of experience may benefit the patient, uh, even though I actually never lay eyes upon the patient uh, because of an impairment. 
you start thinking, you know, what what are you asking for? And I, I think in the same way, I think uh, uh, what do you ask for from the people that are helping you, from the people that uh, are you you are uh, um, uh, you're in contact with throughout the day? Uh, you don't want them obviously to hurt you. Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, can we find a test that says they won't hurt you? Maybe uh, the surgeon's too opinionated. Maybe they're too headstrong. They think that you need to have this surgery, even though it may not be in your best interest. Right. You know, uh, they won't listen. To, uh, what you think of all the ways you can come to harm when you're sick and in the hospital um, to single out this one. I, I'm, I'm kind of with the EEOC on this one. Well, and another another um, example that that kind of gets me really nervous about that is what about a gradual? You know, you have individuals say early dementia there's this gradual decline and early on they learn to adapt maybe they take notes or keep list or checklist when they wouldn't have done that a year ago and they can function just fine with those adaptations that they've learned how to make how do you account for that you know well i'm certainly not the uh, physician i was when i was at age 30 perhaps better perhaps worse i think both I, I and so to your point, I don't know how I would do on a test, certain specific test. Right, because those tests don't account for that gradual decline and those the the things that you've learned to accommodate um, those gradual changes. Fair enough. This leads us nicely, and I think this is going to take the rest of the show. Uh, I'll see if we can uh, make this work. Uh, I want to make sure we get to the end of this. This was from the AMA Journal, uh, January ninth of 2020. And the title of it, A Prescription for Longevity in the 21st Century. And the first question, the the, the author's name is Philip Pizzo, uh, a physician. He says, uh, what guidance should clinicians offer parents of a newborn about how to prepare their child for a life that may last 100 or more years? By 2030, all baby boomers, those born between 46 and 64, will have become 65 years of age and older. They will be 20%, one-fifth of the U.S. population will be over age 65 and eligible for retirement, whether they retire or not, uh, and especially if they're at Yale New Haven. Yeah, I think there'll be a lot <laughs> retiring there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at Maybe. age 69, anyway, huh? Maybe. Uh, in many Western European and Asian countries, the percentage of uh, people over age 65 will be closer to 40% of the population. We simply cannot... First of all, what do we do to help these people to have a full life? But then secondly, how are we going to give up on 40% of the population and support them in their old age? I think so. There are a lot of questions here besides just what is best for the individual. What is best for our society as a higher and higher percentage of our people uh, reach retirement age? The Hartford Foundation constructed an aging society index that assesses nations on their well-being, disability-free life expectancy, their equity, uh, what's their food security, risk of poverty, educational attainment, their cohesion, their social support, trust, and uh, intergenerational connectivity, which is uh, you think is not very good here in the U.S. Productivity and engagement, participation of older adults in the workforce outside of Yale New Haven Hospital, and security, feeling safe and financially secure. And they, they basically, they would advise countries uh, uh, about how they were doing on this. Focus of many medical centers is on precision medicine, critical care, your genetic predisposition. And that's what precision medicine is. It looks at your genes and tries to adapt medicines to your genetic makeup. That's only 30% of your risk for early death. The other determinants, uh, social circumstances, environmental exposure, behavior, lifestyle. There are a lot of things you can do if you have bad genes to make it better. There are a lot of things you cannot do if you have really good genes to screw it up. And so, you know, you cannot rest on the uh, 
previous generation's life expectancy. Um, when you look at cardiovascular disease, dementia, you can modify the genetic risk factors by lifestyle choices. So as we have more and more people living longer, if we're going to keep them productive and make them as happy as they can be and also society is uh, uh, going to be better off, we have to figure out we're all in this together. That's a very difficult thing to say. I'm Really, when I was growing up, my health was my business, not yours. Um, but especially as we combine our insurances, as we combine our uh, social safety net, it starts to make a difference. Yeah, we're almost kind of uh, going back to to when um, it was more of a community, right? We're going to have more members of the family hopefully living longer and being able to participate in the family unit. And, and that does change the way you think about your health and your family members' health, your community's health. Well, and they give several examples here. I'll just mention a couple of them. Having less than a high school education or experiencing poverty can affect your longevity. If, uh, if you have uh, the uh, uh, men and women without a college education have the highest death rates in the United States. And so, you know, do we then as a society, if we're going to keep people active uh, and we're going to do the best we can for our individual members, perhaps then we need to educate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was not, you know, this is still an individual choice. You can drop out if you want to. Uh, and yet society then will have to pick up uh, the things that happen to you, the, the premature death and premature disability that happens to people who are not as well educated. We have an interest, and unfortunately, we're not even providing a good education for people who want to stay in, much less trying to get more people to stay in. I mean, I, there are programs, I know, but still, as a society, we have woefully failed on this. Cut to the chase here. This is the prescription for the future of individuals and communities. Number one, you need to have a purpose. This turns out to be very, very uh, highly linked with uh, your, your longevity. Seek social engagement. Foster wellness through positive lifestyle choices. All of these are important in helping you live longer and live better. They're important at all stages of life, but particularly those midlife and older. And I'll say it again. Have a purpose. Engage socially. Do not withdraw. uh, Join groups. Volunteer. Work with uh, civic organizations. And positive lifestyle choices like exercise, nutrition, and mindfulness. And on that note, we're going to try to get ourselves off the air. Special thanks to our Moorhead State Public Radio producer, Shamari Mosley, and to Eric Bilbrey, who wrote our Health Matters theme song, and to you, our loyal radio fans. Remember to show your support for Health Matters by visiting our digital empire. To listen to the show, it's wmky.org. We're on Facebook at HM Radio Show. For our radio crew and the supportive folks at the Northeast AHEC, thanks for listening to our show. And remember these top ten take-home messages from the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease from the American Heart Association. The most important way to prevent atherosclerotic vascular disease, heart failure, and atrial fibrillation is to promote a healthy lifestyle throughout life. That's your cardiologist talking. Adults who are 40 to 75 and being evaluated for cardiovascular disease prevention, that is, you don't have it yet, you should undergo a 10-year risk estimation, and we can do that with a computer program. All adults should consume a healthy diet that emphasizes vegetables, fruits, nuts, whole grains, lean vegetable or animal protein, and fish, and minimizes the intake of trans fats, red meat, and processed red meats, and sweetened beverages. But eggs are probably okay. They didn't say that. Yes, we did. Eggs. For adults who are overweight and obese, counseling and caloric restriction are recommended for achieving and maintaining weight loss. Adults should engage in at least 150 minutes per week of accumulated moderate-intensity physical activity or 75 minutes per week of vigorous-intensity physical activity. For adults with type 2 diabetes, lifestyle changes such as improving dietary habits and achieving exercise recommendations are crucial. 
All adults should be assessed at every healthcare visit for tobacco use, and those who use tobacco should be assisted and strongly advised to quit. Stop smoking. Aspirin should be used infrequently in the routine primary prevention of uh, ASCVD because of lack of net benefit. Statin therapy is the first line, the first line treatment for prevention of heart disease in people with elevated cholesterol, type 2 diabetes, those who are 40 to 75 years old. Non-drug interventions are recommended for all adults with elevated blood pressure. For those requiring medicines, the target blood pressure should generally be less than 130 over 80. Whatever you do, do not take this stuff lying down. Get out this week, make a healthy change in your life, and tune in next week for more exciting news from the idiots on Moorhead State Public Radio. for Health Matters on MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. Additional information on the Northeast AHEC is available online at neahec.org.